If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. You must learn to listen to the Rebel and the Rogue, or you will not be allowed to come with me to Alderaan. Need to make a call? Look for a police call box. That's where you'll find Two on Who, the new Doctor Who podcast from Electric Surge. Two on Who is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better, available now in hardcover, audio, and digital wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And uh, this is an episode we've been talking about for a long time. Um, you know, it's interesting because, of course, when Star Trek debuted, you know, it's worth noting, what were the other shows on the air at the time? Gomer Pyle. Right. The Beverly Hillbillies. I won't say I Dream of Jeannie because, of course, it is one of Darren's favorite shows. I don't want you to get the wrong impression. <laughs> F Troop. You know, Petticoat Junction, you know, Gunsmoke, and it's like nine seasons. A lot of season. what might be called frivolous entertainment. Frivolous entertainment. So, you know, regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, Star Trek was unique. It had something to say. What exactly it was trying to say is something we're going to talk about today. What is this place? Sanctuary District. 21st century history is not one of my strong points. Too depressing. It's been a hobby of mine. They made some ugly mistakes, but they also paved the way for a lot of things we now take for granted. I assume this is one of those mistakes. A bad one. By the early 2020s, there was a place like this in every major city in the United States. Why are these people in here? Are they criminals? You know, people with criminal records weren't allowed in the sanctuary districts. Then what do they do to deserve this? Nothing. Just people. Without jobs or places to live. So they get put in here? Welcome to the 21st century, Doctor. Oh, they're right there. We've been talking about politics on the show a lot. Um, it's hard to avoid politics these days. Uh, a lot going on in the world, obviously. And, and uh, there's probably never been a more important election than... In our, there is has never been a more important election in our lifetime than the one that's coming up in November. And so Darren, on a recent show, suggested, to his credit, he said, why don't we have bring in some people to talk in more depth about this rather than me just bashing Trump and talking about how progressive Star Trek is. And uh, and, and Darren saying, oh, uh, uh, all because it already. can be it can be argued that there are both progressive and what is known as conservative ideas behind Star Trek. And it can speak to both sides. And 
you know, various uh, places in between. So uh, that's what I thought this would be, be a good idea to, yeah. you know, hash it out a little bit and see, uh, see what everyone thinks in the great and spirit part of, of Idik. Part, and I'm really glad you said that because part of what instigated this also was one of, uh, one of our listeners was talking about Marina Sirtis had posted something that she doesn't understand how conservatives could ever watch Star Trek because clearly it's not a show for them. And, and, and um, you know, I thoroughly disagree with that comment, as I know Darren certainly does. And uh, it started this conversation that we keep coming back to. So anyway, hopefully today we can go into a lot more depth. And we have two great guests. I'm very, very excited. Uh, Jonathan Larson is, uh, in addition to being a longtime friend, in fact, we were hitting on the same girl back in college, back at Brown. High school. Well, high school, that's right, when we were at Brown. That's a whole other podcast. So, um, but, uh, you know... Anyway, but but since then he's gone on to great success, as have I. <laughs> no. And Jonathan is uh, the managing editor of the progressive news outlet The Young Turks. You probably heard of them, uh, and of course uh, he served uh, as a producer on news programs like Countdown with Keith Olbermann, Anderson Cooper Three Hundred and Sixty, and Up with Chris Hayes. He's also the creator of the Endling web com- web comic and wrote two Batman stories for DC Comics. So uh, I don't know what that has to do with um, with with, with uh, politics, but but. There you go. So we got to put the plug in for the Batman. So are, are we going to ask what does a progressive uh, person have in common with Batman? Then are you going to ask me that? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole nother podcast. That's a whole other podcast. Vigilantism, and yeah. that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> so we're not even going to get into into Batman. And of course, then are we talking about the '66 Batman? Right. So, <laughs> you know, are we talking about the Dark Knight? Very different. Very different values being espoused <laughs> there, because of course, you know, the police were bumbling fools in you know uh, in, in in the '66 version. That's where, correct. Anyway. Anyway. Let's not let's not go there. So, and then uh, on the other side of the aisle, not, you know, the virtual aisle, and on board the bridge of the Enterprise, apparently, uh, is uh, Danish House, Danish, uh, who who already I like already because he grew up watching Star Trek on uh, WPIX, uh, yeah. which of course is. Uh, you know, uh, the same uh, as me and Mr. Doctorman. And, oh, look, we're hitting for the cycle. Uh-huh. All four of us. See, can't we all just get along? 11 alive. All... <laughs> 11 alive. That's right. And uh, he's been a, a rabid Star Trek fan ever since. He's also a full-time Christian pastor, and he's uh, living in Poughkeepsie, New York, where he serves as the fleet chaplain for Starfleet Command. And, yeah, figure um, that one out. <laughs> I, 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 I know. I mean, you know, this isn't MASH. This is Star Trek. And uh, he's also a lifelong conservative and a cousin uh, to the Bush family. The Bush so, family. Yeah. The Bush family. Who, you know, <laughs> W's looking a lot better these days. So um, anyway, uh, we're thrilled to have you both here. And uh, I want to, you know, I want to start by obviously we're going to talk about the original Star Trek. Although I think that there's political relevance, at least to the first couple of shows, but certainly Star Trek, which was born in the crucible of the new frontier. Uh, it was uh, you know, a couple of years after the assassin. Clearly, Kennedy had left its mark on Roddenberry. I mean, Roddenberry was kind of a Kennedy-esque figure. He loved women. Uh, he, he, he was a very charismatic. Um, and uh, it was you see that. In, in Star Trek, because at least in my view, Star Trek was a very liberal show, but occasionally it could be very conservative. You look at A Private Little War, um, in which uh, 
is a Vietnam allegory where he basically the solution that Roddenberry posits is let's arm uh, the Klingons. The Klingons are giving them weapons, so we're going to arm the Tyree and his natives equally. We're going to maintain the right. balance of power. Very atypical, in, in, anyway. Do I have to say it? It's not bad enough there's already one serpent in Eden teaching one side about gunpowder. You're going to make sure they all know about it. Exactly. Each side receives the same knowledge and the same type of firearm. Have you gone out of your mind? Yes, maybe you have. Tari's wife, she said there was something in that root. She said, now that you can refuse her nothing. Superstition. Is it a coincidence this is exactly what she wants? Is it? She wants superior weapons. That's the one thing neither side can have. Bones. Bones, the normal development of this planet was a status quo between the hill people and the villagers. The Klingons changed that with the flintlocks. If this planet is to develop in the way it should, we must equalize both sides again. Jim, that means you're condemning this whole planet to a war that may never end. It could go on for year after year, massacre after massacre. All right, Doctor! Say I'm wrong. Say I'm drugged. Say the woman who drugged me. What is your sober, sensible solution to all this? I don't have a solution. But furnishing them firearms is certainly not the answer. Bones, do you remember the 20th century brush wars on the Asian continent? Two giant powers involved much like the Klingons and ourselves. Neither side felt that they could pull out? Yes, I remember. It went on bloody year after bloody year. Well, what would you have suggested? That one side arm its friends with an overpowering weapon? Mankind would never have lived to travel space if they had. No. The only solution is what happened back then. Balance of power. And if the Klingons give their side even more? Then we arm our side with exactly that much more. Balance of power, but so born in the crucible of the, of the new frontier, um, and and in the uh, after Kennedy, and um, and forged and forged in the fires of a time that was filled with more turmoil than even now. Absolutely, right. and we'll and we'll get to that because of right. course, you know, born in '66, but then by the time the show is on its last legs, we're in '68, one of the most important uh, years in recent history: uh, the assassination of Robert Kennedy, the assassination. Of Martin Luther King, um, uh, obviously a lot going on in terms of social movement. It's the time of Woodstock as well. It's kind of the end of flower power. But guys, I, I kind of would love to hear you tell us where, in your mind, you know, what did you respond to, and where does Star Trek sit on the political spectrum for both of you, and why, and why do you see it that way? Why don't we start with you, Jonathan? Um. So yeah, I, I think I think one thing that I'm guessing will kind of pop up as a theme throughout this conversation is that um, politics, as we understand it today, like the demarcations of what is a liberal or progressive, if you want to say, versus what is a conservative, it's really been scrambled over the years. Mm -hmm. And in foreign policy, especially, which Star Trek clearly dealt with, that was the mission, right? It was literally new worlds, new civilizations. That's what foreign is, right? The entire thing was an exercise in what is foreign policy. We obviously saw a lot of domestic, but it paid, it, it dealt with foreign policy a lot more. So 
I, I tend to agree with your with your take that when it comes to foreign policy, it's 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 a little tougher to slot uh, Star Trek into a neat ideological silo. Um, but in terms of domestic policy, I think that one's pretty clear. I think that's pretty well established. I think uh, Roddenberry's political leanings, the the political leanings of the writers, the creators, the people who made this show were pretty clear um, in their own, uh, I think, ideologies and where they stood politically in the time. And I, I, I mean, it was it was fairly clearly liberal in terms of things like obviously what we call now diversity, right? Which at the time you might call race relations, obviously a trailblazer there, um, just in terms of how the crew was envisioned, uh, just in terms of having a Russian, right? As part of the crew. These were all, um, uh, I, I do take a little bit of issue with you about the rest of what was on TV at the time. I think we tend to forget that a lot of the dramas, you mostly rattled through sitcoms, Mark, but I think a lot of the dramas were actually, we would be surprised if we went back and, and really sat down with some of them now. I think a lot of them embodied very sort of humanist, progressive values. And I think we'd be kind of taken aback watching some of those dramas where those things kind of played out. So I would say it's relatively uncontroversial on domestic policy to see it as, as you said, sort of an offshoot of the Camelot mindset. And I think it gets a little more difficult and more interesting maybe on the foreign policy side of things. And now I'll shut up. Yeah, well, Danish, I want to ask you, because obviously as a pastor, I would imagine that the morality of Star Trek really appealed to you. Um, and uh, because, of course, it's a very moral universe. Um, and uh, that, I think, is something that certainly as uh, a formative show of our youth really appealed uh, to a lot of us. But uh, what's your perception of the original Star Trek and where it stands politically? I do want to clarify that when I first started watching Star Trek, I, I wasn't yet a pastor. I didn't actually, uh, wasn't born that way. Uh, that's uh, something I Not came to Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, well, when I was a kid, what really appealed to me about Star Trek was, I mean, I loved the stories. I loved, I loved space. I loved zipping around in the Starship Enterprise. My my parents bought me Franz Joseph's Starfleet technical manual, you know, and I just devoured that thing and, and was drawing and making my own communicators, making my own phasers and drawing my own ships. And I, I love that stuff. I wanted to be Captain Kirk uh, growing up. I, I, I you know, had my own, made my own uniform and I, me and my friends would go out in the woods and we'd stand still and go, you know, and, and then we'd start our adventure. Uh, that's that's the kind of thing that we did, and uh, you know I love that spirit of adventure. Um, I uh, I was I don't think I, I as a kid watched Star Trek for its politics. I watched Star Trek for its adventure. I watched Star Trek for the fun of it. I lo I watched Star Trek for you know especially as I was growing up. I, I loved watching Star Trek for the girls. You know I I, I, I just thought you know it's a it's a fantastic show. It works on so many different levels. Um, I think when it, when you look at the politics of Star Trek, I mean, there's there's different. I think there's a difference between sort of politics in terms of like uh, specific policies, uh, foreign policy, domestic policy, tax policy, these sorts of things, uh, and, and and ideology. And I think that um, that Star Trek 
you know, in, in some ways it embodied some liberal policy proposals. But I think a lot of the ideology of Star Trek, a lot of the the sort of the um, the fabric of Star Trek uh, appeals very strongly to conservatives. I mean, ideas about self-defense when you're when you're being attacked. I mean, that's you know, that's something that's a, a Star Trek value. That's a very conservative value. Um, I think. Uh, I think of uh, you know uh, loyalty of a crew. Um, that's a very Star Trek value. I think a lot of conservatives, uh, even in the '60s and '70s, were coming out of the army and the navy, the air force, and they were and they knew what it was like to be cr- a part of a diverse crew, and they knew what it was like to to uh, to have that loyalty to your crewmates. I think that's that's a value that uh, conservatives deeply cherish. Can I um, exhibit a, a um, apparently what's a conservative value of standing up for yourself in self-defense? I, I don't think that I don't think that historically that conservatives have had a lock or a monopoly on the idea that one can defend oneself physically or, sure. or on or on loyalty. And I, I would also add that I think Star Trek uh, in in more than one episode emphasized how uh, the sort of institutional tenets had to take priority over personal loyalties and personal friendship. Well, I right? don't. We saw I, that I don't think. I don't think the question is that uh, any of these uh, uh, um, attributes of Star Trek are only in one, uh, you know, section of the political spectrum or another. I think it's you know when we have a question of what are uh, these things that are appealing to a conservative mind then those are uh, some things. But that doesn't mean that they aren't also appealing to the liberal mind as well. So we have to be careful about, you know, partitioning everything off as if it's owned by one side or another. I think what it did also was refute the jingoism of the Cold War, because how many times do you see an episode like Arena, like Corbmite Maneuver, where you think the villain who, you know, it's a misunderstanding Mm -hmm. and you end up, realizing that, okay, maybe we should try and understand where our opponent is coming from. The Corbmite Maneuver, we think, is this horrible monster, or the, the, the you know, uh, uh, Devil in the Dark, we, it's killing our people, that it's, it's an abhorrent thing that we must kill, you know, and, and the same thing in Arena. No. No, I won't kill you. Maybe you thought you were protecting yourself when you attack the outpost. No, I won't kill him. Do you hear? You'll have to get your entertainment someplace else. Does my appearance surprise you, Captain? You seem more like a boy. I am approximately 1,500 of your Earth years old. You surprise me, Captain. How? By sparing your helpless enemy, who surely would have destroyed you. You demonstrated the advanced trait of mercy. Mercy. 
something we hardly expected. We feel that there may be hope for your kind. Therefore, you will not be destroyed. It would not be civilized. What happened to the Gorn? I sent him back to his ship. If you like, I shall destroy him for you. No, that won't be necessary. We can talk. Maybe reach an agreement. Very good, Captain. And ultimately, by trying to understand our enemy, we, we come to an understanding, uh, you know, rather than like, let's just destroy it. Right. And I think, you know, that at its heart is, is uh, you know, at the very, baked into the DNA of Star Trek. And I wouldn't necessarily say that is a, a tenet of conservatism. Right. Danish, you have a well, you have a comment. Yeah, and, and I guess I would disagree with you on that, Mark. I, I, I guess I'd say that um, uh, you know part of uh, part of I think why the reasons why folks like Marina Sirtis can say that um, that you know conservatives ha- you know there's no reason for a conservative to be a fan of Star Trek is I don't I don't think that Marina Sirtis really hangs out with a lot of conservatives. Is my guess. <laughs> I think you're uh, my, my guess right. is she probably doesn't have lots of conservatives in her life that she loves and cherishes and respects. Um, and I, you know I, I I don't think that uh, a lot of liberals. I think this might this may be my my stereotype, but I think a lot of liberals really have close conservative friends and and know kind of who conservatives are on the inside. And, and, I, and I would agree with you, Mark, that, you know, the value of Star Trek of, of sort of getting to know the other and getting to know the other as a, as a, as a person, as a, no matter what they look like on the outside, um, I think that's a tremendous value. And I think that's a value that, um, that, you know, I'd, I'd love to see uh, my liberal friends uh, practice perhaps more consistently. Very good. So, so uh, Mark, I, I, I also want to push back a little bit on, on what you said about, um, I mean, I love the, the devil in the dark story. I love the way that resolves. Yeah, it's episode. radical. It's radical to me. Um, and, and, and imagining it airing today and people going, yeah, they signed a trade deal. Woohoo. That's now that's the, that's Phantom Menace. That's, that's Star Wars. <laughs> right, right, right. But, but, but where, where I think, I think there's a counterexample to what you're talking about is is in the most famous, uh, well, maybe second most. If you count the Vulcans as the most famous, the Klingons are a warlike race. Just the idea that there is a warlike race, that, that I think, aligns more closely with conservative foreign policy as, as we've seen it and as it's played out over the decades. The, the liberals are usually accused of saying, oh, you're not, you don't get who they are. They want to destroy us. They want to wipe out our way of life. Look, you're absolutely right, but the Klingons were created in the midst of the Cold War, and they right. were clearly an analog to the Russians, to well, the yeah. and and the Chinese, and, and, and the Chinese, oh, right? and yeah. um, and and as a result, um, uh, you know, be, then you have an episode like Aaron Diversity, where we're about to go to war, and we're excited about going to war. We can't wait to go to war. And it's the Organians who put an end to it. And in one of the great, great scenes in Star Trek, you basically have Kirk and Kor arguing for the right to go to war. And then, you know, Kirk feels like an idiot because he realizes he's literally arguing to go to war and, and when they've stopped it. And it's just such a great, I mean, that is Gene Kuhn 
you know, kind of at his finest. Uh, and because, you know, a lot of that has to do, and this goes to something Danish said, which is, is true. A lot of people coming back from uh, veterans were involved with these shows. So right. you have people like Gene Kuhn who fought World War II in Korea and Gene Roddenberry who fought in World War II and a lot of the other writers who were veterans who realized the horrors of war. As I stand here, I also stand upon the home planet of the Klingon Empire and the home planet of your Federation, Captain. I'm going to put a stop to this insane war. You're what? You're talking nonsense. It is being done. You can't just stop the fleet. What gives you the right? You can't interfere. What happens in space is not your business. Unless both sides agree to an immediate cessation of hostilities, all your armed forces, wherever they may be, will be immediately immobilized. We have legitimate grievances against the Klingons. They've invaded our territory, killed our citizens. They're openly aggressive. They've boasted that they'll take over half the galaxy. And why not? We're the stronger. You've tried to hem us in, cut off vital supplies, strangle our trade. You've been asking for war. You're the ones who issued the ultimatum to withdraw from the disputed area. They're not disputed. They're clearly ours. And now you step in with some kind of trick? It is no trick, Commander. We have simply put an end to your war. All your military forces, wherever they are, are now completely paralyzed. We find interference in other people's affairs most disgusting. But you gentlemen have given us no choice. You should be the first to be an Arsai. Two hundred hostages killed. No one has been killed, Captain. No one has died here in uncounted thousands of years. You are liars. You're meddling in things that are none of your business. Even if you have some power that we don't understand, you have no right to dictate to our Federation or our Empire how to handle their interstellar relations. We have the right to wage war, Captain, to kill millions of innocent people, to destroy life on a planetary scale. Is that what you're defending? It's not about rah, 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 sis, boom, bah. They're like, you know, if you go to war, you go to war for a good reason, you know, to defeat fascism in Germany, you know, but you don't just go to war because, you know, it's it's fun, you know, and, and I think that's definitely something that both sides hopefully can, you know, would agree on. And it's, uh, again, another fundamental principle of Star Trek, even though there's a whole bunch of Star Trek fans that just want to see war stories they just want to see fighting i mean obviously the deep space nine arc which is so wonderful um you know it's 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 a great arc but nobody's happy about going to war and oh. you know I, I one, of my, okay. one of my favorite uh definitions of conservatism as opposed to liberalism is by ambrose bierce ambrose bierce said that a conservative is somebody who's enamored of existing evils as distinguished from the liberal who wishes to replace them with other evils. And uh, I think it's just a fun little tongue-in-cheek definition. Uh, this, the conservatives are, are folks, ideologically, are, are typically people who like and respect old ideas and, and feel like the old ideas have merit and ought to be preserved. If you want to talk about Star Trek races, uh, the Vulcans are extremely conservative. These are folks who are following the teachings of a guy who died 2,000 years ago, right? Extremely conservative. They, they, they love this, these old ideas, the ideas of logic, right? You, you go to, in a mock time, you go to, uh, you go to 
uh, Vulcan, and you see, you know, these are these are traditions that have been passed down throughout the centuries. Um, these are folks who have, you know, they've 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 modernized in their technology, they've modernized in a lot of their their ways, but but they have still have this rock solid core of ancient belief, which is something that appeals to conservatives very strongly. Conservatives want to say, okay, well, let's let's uh, think twice before jettisoning. Uh, ideas that have have worked uh, for a very very long time. Now, obviously, not every idea that has been around for a long time is worth keeping. Um, but I think conservatives are very strongly in favor of 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 not jettisoning things that have worked uh, for a very long time. I, I think I would have agreed with you up until about three years ago. And actually, I was thinking earlier that you know I think people forget a lot of, of about what conservatism, uh, especially the Rockefeller side rather than the Goldwater side, what conservatism looked like in the 60s and 70s, the, the conservatives in this country prided themselves on being the intellectuals. And it was the left that was this emotional batch of, of hippies that just did whatever they wanted and all that. So, so there actually was, you, you could make the case, I think, that conservatives saw themselves as very logical, and they applied reason. They they were um, bloodless, not in the sense of being uncompassionate, but in the sense of not being ruled by their passions. Right. And, and um, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to bring it to, to where sure. we are now. If we're talking about conservatism now, I don't think you can make the case that conservatism in 2020 embraces old ideas, like sending U.S. troops to clear out protesters from the streets so that the president can have a photo op on a church where members at, at a church on on holy ground where members of the church of the clergy there are forced out of their own house of worship i think this to be not, yeah, to be fair ahead. i don't think that the uh, believers in conservatism um uh, are in favor of that i mean true conservatives i think uh believe in something that is way different that is being uh portrayed uh, these days, okay. That, and I, that's certainly and, been. I hope, Sorry. I hope that's true. Well, of, of course it's true. I mean, the 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 fact is that a lot he's of still got, he's still got polling. At least a third of the country proves that how he's handling. I'm not. The job. I'm not going to get into that because who's doing the polling and who's all that? I don't. You know, oh. we we know that Where's we know posters? that polling results are way off. Certainly from uh, 2016. Do you um, think they're hiding their own polls? Because they've got the money to do their own polls. It's weird that they wouldn't release them. I'm not going to get into specifics like that. I'm, ta I'm still talking either. about. I'm still talking about a generalization of the the conservative and and uh, Democratic and Republican, just to be specific, in the in the 60s and 70s, were way different than they are now. A right. a, a Kennedy Democrat was totally more conservative than a Democrat is uh, these days, even in the uh, 80s and 90s, um, based, based on uh, Kennedy's policies and, uh, and uh, attitude towards um, uh, defense and, uh, and uh, you know, and... Well, supposedly he wanted to get out of Vietnam, so I'm not sure. And, and Democrats today, they're, they're approving the National Defense Authorization Act pretty much rubber stamp, so I'm not sure where the daylight is there. Well, Jonathan, you're, you're also you're not going to get any argument from me about uh, about the president's photo opportunity uh, on Lafayette Park. I mean, I, uh, I I I've never voted for a Democrat in my life, 
Um, but uh, but I did. I mean, I, I changed my party registration from Republican to conservative in 2016. Um, so I mean, I, I'm not. Well, I, uh, I don't think I. I don't think I would consider myself a Trump Republican. Right. I think the the best place to learn about what conservatism is is from Edmund Burke and from Russell Kirk and from Friedrich Hayek and Alexis de Tocqueville. I don't think it's from Trump and even Bush or or Limbaugh. Uh, I mean, I think that uh, conservatism and conservatism as well, a philosophy. I'm dealing with the evils of reality. <laughs> no, no, look, uh, and so am I every day. Uh, and that's that's. Uh, that's part of I mean, my life. I agree Thank with you. you. I agree with you that our current conservative strain has strayed from the the historic origins that you laid out. But I'm kind of I'm kind of grappling with where we are at the moment. And and in your defense, I would say like we've seen people like Mitt Romney and others in the Republican Party condemn this. So I, I absolutely agree. It's not monolithic. Just, no, I, just think, so I, I think I think you can make. That. I think you can make the distinction between Trumpism and conservatism because, you know, I find myself, I mean, up is down and down is up, agreeing with like George Will, you know, and agreeing with uh, the National Review, which, you know, my lifetime, I never could see that ever happening. But I mean, I think that in, in, intelligentsia strain of, of the Republican Party that you talk about, you know, is a Trump. And it's the, the, the Looney Tunes that are uh, that are pro Trump. Uh, and it goes to having no respect for government, which takes us back to Star Trek, because, of course, the Federation was as big a government as you could imagine. And for the most part, it was extremely effective. It had Starfleet, uh, which was an effective military branch, and it developed uh, colonies and uh, it, it brought together multiple species um, it negotiated wars and treaties. And yes, it did present um, a lot of the ambassadors and a lot of the admirals as idiots and fools, you know, who, but at the same time, it was a very effective big government, you know, at work. And in the original and, show, it was uh, putting forth the idea of American exceptionalism. Yeah, I agree with absolutely. that. Absolutely. I absolutely, absolutely agree with that. But I think also if you look at, at the United Federation of Planets, um, one of the conservatism's uh, you know, tenets is that government, the, the government is best at, at the lowest level possible, right? Uh, the, the, it functions best at the lowest level. The, the, the government that's closest to the people, most accountable to the people, uh, you ought to keep decisions as close down as you can. Now, there's some decisions that have to go up to the federal level, but uh, you know, conservatism likes local politics, likes federalism. And you know, I think that you see that in Starfleet. You see, you see that in the United Federation of Planets, right? I mean, it's the higher up the food chain you go in the UFP, you you encounter you know awful people, uh, and then the and then when when the Federation works at its best is when it's letting local planets uh, govern themselves, when they when it lets lets planets have their local autonomy and and have respect for local customs and local differences. Um, the the Federation is not imposing one monolithic culture on all the planets uh, in, in the UFP, uh, the, the Federation is allowing for local government to take place. I think that's a very conservative idea. It's, is it a big government? Absolutely. Um, but the higher up you go in, the, in Starfleet, or the higher up you go in the United Federation of Planets, the more you find folks who are actually power hungry and, you know, and, and, and looking for their own, uh, their own benefit 
rather than the benefit of the people that they're serving. I think that was more in Next Generation than it was in the original. In the original, it it was a lack of competence. But even somebody that we couldn't stand, like that Poppin' J. Fox and A Taste of Armageddon, you know, ultimately after Kirk broke Aminiar and Vendikar, you know, and to his credit, he violated the Prime Directive and set things straight, then someone had to stay and, 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 and make sure that they would, you know, Follow it wasn't through. like Rumsfeld right. after Iraq, you know, where it's like, oh, rioting, you know, it happens. And, uh, and and it was like he stayed behind and obviously, you know, kept uh, put that planet back together, we assume. Right. And even he was smart enough to realize that Captain Kirk did the right thing. So I, I think where you find the evil admirals and the traitors and the people is much more next generation, which politically is an extremely different show from the original show. Right. It, it's born in the 90s. It is very much of um, the, the George H.W. Bush era, which is consensus, bu- consensus building, thousand points of light, very touchy-feely. Um, you know, Picard, especially in the beginning, is, you know, very like, what do you think? What do you think? Let's all agree, you know? And I... Um, and I, I'm not saying that it's necessarily wrong, but I think it is very different from the original uh, series. I, I love that. You're right, calling, and there were a lot of stuff. you're calling really Picard a conservative a captain. Uh, That's really that funny. Uh, in terms of the admirals and the higher-ups there, and, and you know, ultimately we find out uh, you know, some of them are even aliens. Jonathan, I mean, you, you know, had a comment. Shape change. Oh, no, I said thank you. I was just going to say, regarding Danish, what you oh. said earlier, I think, I think if the... If, if Starfleet, if the analogy is that that's America, then I think how it deals with other planets is more of, in other words, um, when you talk about how it, it allowed other planets to have their own culture and all that, and that's like an analog, an analogy for states' rights, I, I'm not sure that holds up, or maybe it shifts depending on the, on the dramatic needs of each episode. Right. Because I, I tend to see it as the, the Starfleet is America, and within America, that is a federal system, right? Where right. there's virtual uniformity, literally, throughout Starfleet. And it's only in its foreign policy, right? Because the, the planets, they, the new worlds they went to, new civilizations, I don't think they were stand-ins for states as often as they were for nation states, right. other countries. Right. And that's where, they, that's where they practiced much less of an interventionist policy than maybe conservatives would go to. But but the other angle of, about all this, I think, is it's hard to sometimes pull out an exegesis, I guess, of what this stuff means, right. because we, we can't always know how much reflected what they were trying to say and how much was just simply, we need conflict, we need story. So we're going to sure. artificially go against what our hoped for moral or theme is. And so you don't have like a pleasing consistency to their thematic narrative so it's a little messy which makes it of course fun to talk about i i think you're you're absolutely right um because of the you know on on uh, one week uh kirk is the police officer right uh and the week after that he is uh stopping someone else from being the police officer so it it did change from week to week um an, but another thing that I found very interesting and uh, sort of uh, also sort of feeds the, you know, what exactly what were they trying to say was that the, there is a, a big sort of uh, uh, huge idea gap 
between the stated fact that uh, the world of Star Trek in the 23rd century is a world of plenty, where no one was going without food or, or sustenance or, uh, you know, the, the basic needs of life, right? And then on the other hand, you have someone like uh, 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 Cyrano Jones, who is a, a, a shifty uh, dealer and trader who is basically running a black market, you know, and how do these how do these things sort of correspond to one another? Right. It's, what it's, is it that he wants that he can't get? Yeah, from exactly. A exactly. <laughs> what, why is there why is there any sort of uh, commerce like going on like that? If in fact it's a universe of plenty. Well, what about Mud's women? Talk exactly. about yeah. commerce. He was, uh, you know, selling selling women. But yeah. again, at the at the heart of that story is the drug ends up being a placebo and it's telling a story about beauty comes from the inside and not, you know, so even though it's a story about prostitution and about this, you know, Leo Walsh, he's a liar. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it's an, you interesting know, cognitive, heart, it's an interesting cognitive dissonance that occurs when you take basically a Western story, a, 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 you know, a, yeah. a, a Western story that takes place in the frontier and you put it in this in this setting of the, the you know, of the utopian future it mm -hmm. some things just yeah. don't work directly and the medium right the form of their storytelling doesn't require them it doesn't oblige them to do comprehensive right. internally consistent world building right they can they can say to hell with continuity they didn't right. know there were going to be dvds that's so correct who's remember <laughs> what we said last week can i can yeah, i read one other point that I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts on. Am I allowed to do that? Of course. You may. So uh, as someone who watched it on WPIX, I find it interesting that maybe there's like weird generational differences, right? If you watch them in prime time as a grown-up, you saw uncut versions with the full sort of grown-up, mature, for their time themes explored. When we saw them on WPIX, a lot of the blah, 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 had been cut out so that they could there was about 10 minutes cut out. right there was, was about 10 minutes cut out of every every right. episode and it was usually one of the talky scenes right and then yeah. when i grew up right i was like what is this stuff happening between the pew pew <laughs> I, and it was amazing to see like to see how that shifts the the i'm curious i don't know how often you guys have talked about that but i'm curious how you think that affects how we see it as a political work of art of culture that's a good question. I, I hadn't really thought about it, but I, um, because usually, usually the stuff they, the stuff that they cut out didn't really change the overall bent of the episode. Rather, it was just something that sort of uh, increased the interest level in it and maybe expounded upon, uh, you know, certain character interactions. Um, but I don't think it, you know, I could be wrong. Uh, but I don't think that any of the any of the cuts that were made during syndication really sort of did that much change to the to the actual core of the episodes at all. I, I, am I wrong, Mark? No, I think whoever cut it for WPIX did an extraordinary job. <laughs> I mean, I remember long before the VHS, um, I would have we had relatives in California. 
they w- I would have them tape the marathons and send us the videotapes yeah. of the episodes so I could see the scenes that I hadn't seen in New York. It was the first time I saw uh, the dressing down of Scotty scene in Tribbles, right. which was always cut by PAX. The the, the awful scene in City on Your Forever where the, uh, the bum uh, uses the phaser to disintegrate himself. Right. That was always cut... From a PIX, I mean, I could pre- they did that horrible scene in in the Cloudminders, the, which we now love because it's so ridiculous. Where Nimoy does the narration for ten minutes, right. to, extolling the virtues of the lovely Draxine. I mean, all that stuff was cut. I right. mean, that guy deserves a medal. Who who edited? Uh, <laughs> they're actually better. Yeah, in, in some cases, absolutely. <laughs> you know, uh, so uh, so it, it's pretty pretty great. I actually lost you guys for a few minutes. I was having some technical difficulties with my earphones, so I, I apologize if I looked bored. It was not remotely. I'm fascinated by this discussion. We know. I was trying. I was trying to. I was trying to vamp while you were while you were going through it. So I, I'm glad oh, you're back. Okay, thank you. But I, I'm back, I, and I, you know, I, I just want to point out, you know, if if you look at at the, at the show, and again, these aren't necessarily liberal or conservative ideas. All you know, I'll, I'll let you be the judge of that. But you know, certainly. Uh, you know, we talk about uh, Star Trek decrying racism, and everyone always points in the documentaries, and I think I was guilty of this too, of showing "Let that be your last battlefield" with black on the w- right. one side, white, which is a terrible uh, indictment so of, ter- of racism. Yeah. yeah, but if you look at the more accurate version, first of all, the fact that Uhura is on the bridge. Uh, that, that is the ultimate indictment. You know, Roddenberry and Nichelle both talk about you know the hate mail they would get right. uh, about, uh, or the the Southern racist who would write, whether this is uh, apocryphal or not, who would say, you know, I I don't like the fact that you have a Negro on the bridge, but um, but if it had to be somebody, I'm glad it's that beautiful woman or what you know whatever. But uh, uh, but you know, if you look at the way it dealt with racism, there's balance of terror. You know, where yeah. where um, the 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 racism against Spock, um, you know who they think is in league with the with the Romulans, and of course this is only a couple of years after the Japanese are sent to internment camps in World War Two, um, and you you have a well, couple 20, of really 20 years after. Yeah, it's a couple of years. It's, I mean, it's it's it's, it's less than the time it's, between it's the best of both worlds. Eye. It's the wink of an eye. Thank you. And it's between it's less than the time between best of both worlds and today. So there you go. But uh, and considerably less time than since Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Owens. That's right. But um, but uh, you know, so Star Trek actually did with dealt with racism in a lot more nuanced way Absolutely. than in that episode that everybody talks about. Keep going. Cryptography is working on it, sir. Give it the spark. Didn't quite get that, Mr. Sam. Nothing, sir. Repeat it. I was suggesting that Mr. Spock could probably translate it for you, sir. I assume you're complimenting Mr. Spock on his ability to decode. I'm not sure, sir. Well, here's one thing you can be sure of, Mr. Leave any bigotry in your quarters. There's no room for it on the bridge. Do I make myself clear? You do, sir. We talked about integrated service. We talked about the role of science is so important in Star Trek. Um, you know, science isn't um, disregarded. Uh, the scientists uh, are, are valued. And, uh, you know, it's not like we just went through with coronavirus where, you know, the politicizing of science um, 
uh, nuclear proliferation, proliferation. You could look at Doomsday Machine right. as what happens when we, uh, with uh, you know, uh, nuclear weapons is a, a treatise on that. I don't know if that's what Norman Spinrad had in mind, but uh, you certainly could look at it that way. When our weapons get away from us and mm-hmm. potentially with uh, you know dire apocalyptic consequences. So um, I mean, these are all things that Star Trek was 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 grappling with, and whether it's in retrospect we see these things or they were intended. I think in a lot of cases. They were intended. I mean, you know, I, I just we just watched um, the spy who came in from the cold last night. Um, Richard Burton, I think, nineteen sixty-two. That's not a Star Trek episode. <laughs> it's not a Star, and I know that's weird to talk about something, but but that I want to I want to I bring it up because the cultural environment. I was blown away. There's a character in the movie on the wall. She has a poster that says "No Nuclear Proliferation." I was like, there was a no nukes movement in nineteen sixty-two. Sure enough to be in the movies that blew me away but i think that's the environment that they were creating the show in so it's impossible for me to believe that they weren't cognizant of the thematic interlocking with what was going on even at that level yeah i think star trek you know one of the things for conservatives and i i uh, I, i posed this question to my conservative friends on facebook just to get some other people's feedback on this and I think one of the things that uh, for conservatives about Star Trek is that, you know, we recognize that Star Trek is a fantasy, right? I mean, it, uh, many of the elements of Star Trek are, um, are clearly fantastical. We were, you were talking earlier about the, the economic system of Star Trek, which who knows? I mean, economics in Star Trek works a lot like magic does in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it's like not really clear. I mean, I'm sure Tolkien had a better idea of it than, than Jackson does. But um, but there's there's fantasy elements to Star Trek, right? And, and the fantasy elements of Star Trek are, in, for one thing, the utopian society. And, and we, we look at utopia and we're like, oh, wouldn't it be swell to live in a, a society where uh, where there was no scarcity, where there was no want, where everyone's needs were taken care of. Um, and it's, I think it's very easy to say, okay, well, that's a liberal approach. Well, no, I think that's a fantasy approach uh, to, to storytelling. It, it's, it's a magical thing that in Star Trek, uh, nobody has any want, uh, or at least not semi-consistently. That, that seems to be Star Trek's uh, fantasy world. We don't live in that world. And I think conservatives look at Star Trek and they're like, well, you know, I would love to live in a world where there's no scarcity, but we don't. See, and that's... because we live in a world with, where that has scarcity and because we have a, a, live in a world where there's uh, a limited resources, um, Star Trek doesn't have a lot to say about, um, let's say, modern economic policy, for example. Well, I think I would that's say... a great... Go ahead, Jonathan. Sorry. I, I would say that that if we're looking at Starfleet as an analog for America, I would argue that America doesn't have any more scarcity than Starfleet does, right? Ours isn't an amount of stuff problem. Ours is a distribution problem. And in Star Trek, I don't, I don't recall seeing um, inequity in distribution of the resources that it had. Now, it's because they have a magic transporter. Meaning Uh, what? The transporter can 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 send any object anywhere within you know thousands of miles. But you don't see well, you don't see haves and have nots in right. Star Trek, right. except that except that you have I mean, in, in modern Trek now you have you have Raffi on within the Federation. Uh, Star Trek Picard right. and 
yeah, I mean, but there there are some, and you, you talked about Cyrano Jones earlier as someone who's kind of scratching out a living. Um, also, those miners uh, mm -hmm. in Mud's Women, you know, they're they're scratching out a living on on a, a planet doing jobs nobody wants to do. Um, yeah. They're they're know, the West th Virginia th of the Federation. Well, they're they're yeah. the yeah. well they're the gold miners because they're immensely rich and they and they call them immensely rich in the episode because they yes. are they own the source of all the energy in the in the Starfleet. But there's nothing got, to do with that money. So you've got flints on the Methuselah planet. You know. <laughs> well, look, I, I want to say that I think that. Uh, um, Danish makes an important distinction, and I think this is actually somewhere where you really can say there's a difference between the conservative approach and the liberal approach to Star Trek because you refer to it as magical thinking, and I think a lot of uh, people on the other side of the aisle who came to Star Trek love it because it's aspirational, because they believe this is something that can be achieved as opposed sure. to magical thinking, and I think that definitely is a fundamental difference between the two perceptions, which, you know, but I think everybody would love to, to see it. Uh, you know, that day come where there is no want, where there is no, uh, but, uh, you know, how do we incentivize really, people to work? We didn't really see the replicator used as, as a magic device for creating wealth, right? It was for hot chocolate and soup. It, it and chicken it. sandwich and coffee. Right. right. My chicken right. sandwich and coffee. <laughs> Yeah. So I they don't oh, Darren do that line. <laughs> yeah, thank you. You're absolutely right, Danish. We agree on that too. I'd much rather hear Darren do that. I was watching Free Enterprise over the weekend to prep for this, uh, oh and God. I loved Darren's uh, Darren's Kirk impression. Phenomenal. Uh, that was a very long time ago. <laughs> yeah, oh, come on, Darren. You could do. It. Come on, give it to us. My chicken sandwich and coffee. This is my chicken sandwich and coffee. Scotty, I want these things off the ship. I don't care if it takes every man who got I want them off the ship. See, this is, this is, it warms my heart. I love this stuff. That is so but fantastic because it's not just the usual cliched, you know, pausing stuff. The, the, the timber, like the, the, you just nailed the voice itself. It's that not Kevin Pollack. It's, it's it, authentic. It's only yeah. taken me 50 freaking Burn. years. So, yeah, you, you know, so, you. so Jonathan, I do want to say that actually what you refer to using the the replicator to create wealth, it happens later on in Deep Space Nine where the Ferengi covet gold pressed latinum. Right. And um, I, I think that's something later sure on where there's the a currency. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. look, you know, look, that opens a whole nother thing, yeah. because once you get to the later Star Trek, you know, there's a question of now Pillar and Berman deny that Bajor and the Cardassians are a Palestinian-Israeli analog, which I'm glad they do, because if it were, it would be offensive. But um, they are also, the Ferengi, some people saw as an anti-Semitic trope. Um, again, you know, that's in the eye of the beholder. I, I really? don't think it was... In I've not heard that. Yeah, I don't, oh, I don't yeah, think yeah, it was I've intentional. Um, uh, but, uh, but, but more importantly, you know, at, when uh, Deep Space Nine was written, it was in the aftermath of the L.A. riots and was very much informed by um, what had happened during the riots and about the idea, you know, the famous line Reginald, after Reginald Denny, can we all get along? Um, that was at the very heart of, of sort of the Deep Space Nine pilot. And Deep Space Nine is probably the last of the really political Star Trek shows, I would argue. I don't think, well, you know, by the time you get... The accurately political Star Trek shows. 
Well, no. I mean, I think that has anything to say about politics. Well, I, 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 I think I that's mean, that's what I mean too. It's because Voyager really isn't. You know, if anything, it's kind of next generation light, whether you right. like it or not. Right. Um, Enterprise isn't saying anything very political. Although, I mean, look. Although the way they portray the Vulcans is very there you go interesting. And it goes to what Danish was saying uh, about you know sort of this very ritual. Uh, ancient culture, which is very much based on that Judaism, Absolutely. obviously. Um, but, um, but uh, w- you know, it, it's sort of a reinvention of what the Vulcans are in right. that they're very yeah. um, treacherous and they, they don't want, uh, they don't believe in Earth and they're trying to undermine Earth. Right. And, uh, you know, look, at the time, I, I didn't like it. But, uh, you know, looking at it in retrospect, you sort of say, okay, well, it's different. They're doing something original, something I didn't expect. Um, but I, that's sort of beyond the purview of this episode. It's like um, I, I hope that sometime you guys do an episode on Star Trek and religion because I think it'll be a lot of fun. I, I think that Deep Space Nine. Uh, it's for, I mean, I'm, I'll always be a TOS fan till the day I die. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I'm probably in the secret cockles of my heart. I'm probably a Niner uh, more than anything. And I, I think Deep Space Nine has one of the most nuanced depictions of religion uh, and, and the, the, the dialogue between religion and science um, of any show, uh, not just any Star Trek show, but any show. I mean, I, I was just watching uh, last night, I was watching Hand, The Hand of the Prophets and uh, or first season episode of Deep Space Nine and, and uh, yeah, just phenomenal discussions between, in, in Cisco's office, between Kira and, uh, and uh, Keiko and, and Cisco. And I just, I mean, really phenomenal and tremendous and, and wonderful. Um, and, you know, again, as a conservative, uh, conservatives statistically tend to be more religious. I'm a, certainly a religious conservative. Um, and, uh, you know, as a religious conservative, I, I love Deep Space Nine. I love the fact that Deep Space Nine takes the time to not just caricature uh, its religious characters, but it actually has religious characters who are um, are worth uh, listening to in Kira. And then and you have Cisco essentially have a religious conversion over the course of seven seasons. And it's just, that's powerful. I, I love it. Um, and I know that, uh, you know, I, I can't say that all of my conservative religious Star Trek fan friends are Niners. Uh, some of them actually like Voyager the best. Um, but uh, but we certainly everybody, Jonathan. Clearly, <laughs> not a competition, uh, yeah, Mark. <laughs> no, I will. I, I, Danish. You know, it's funny what you said because I think it's much more likely that we would do a show on the religious, uh, the religion of Star Trek than the economics of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. I don't think well, the economics yeah. of Star you Trek don't drive are people crazy. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I don't want to do that show. But uh, but the religion of Star Trek is actually fascinating. What you bring up, and even though. Um, it's interesting because Gene Ronberry talked about Star Trek being, um, you know, a, a show, a secular show in which, you know, religion, you know, was sort of now uh, considered superstition. You have episodes like Bread Circuses. I wish we could have examined that belief of his more closely. It seems illogical for a sun worshiper to develop a philosophy of total brotherhood. Sun worship is usually a primitive superstition religion. I'm afraid you have it all wrong, Mr. Spock, all of you. I've been monitoring some of their old-style radio waves. The Empire spokesman trying to ridicule their religion. 
But he couldn't. Well, don't you understand? It's not the sun up in the sky. It's the son of God. Caesar. And Christ. They had them both. And the word is spreading only now. Philosophy of total love and total brotherhood. It will replace their imperial Rome, but it will happen in their 20th century. Wouldn't it be something to watch, to be a part of? To see it happen all over again. Which talks about sure. Jesus, and you have... Um, you, the more turned on us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the one God will be sufficient. So it's right. interesting. I think it really is by the time you get to next generation that religion becomes a lot less important. But as you said, Deep Space Nine is a very nuanced uh, uh, look at that. It's also a very strong depiction of a um, black father and son relationship, which is extremely oh, which is well uh, handled, adeptly done. And it's a beautiful uh, uh, relationship between Avery and Ciroc in that show. I mean, it, 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 and of course... Which is one major his... reason why I'm a Niner. Mm-hmm. I, I love that relationship. I, I love the fact that Deep Space Nine, this is not our topic, our topic, but I love the fact that Deep Space Nine, I think, takes a, a, a view of human relationships, I think, um, that's much broader than other Star Trek shows. It, it shows us a father-son relationship. It shows us a husband-wife relationship. It shows us, uh, you know, brother-brother uh, relationships, which in the rest of Star Trek, you know, the relationships are, are crew relationships and the relationships are, you know, sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, 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 the initial sparks of romance uh, relationships. Uh, Deep Space Nine actually takes the time to expand mature human relationships relationships that have gone down the road sometime. Um, and I love that about Deep Space Nine. Uh, I think that, of course, having those families aboard the ship, you could have done that in TNG with, with the Crusher family. Uh, they didn't really do that. Um, but in Deep Space Nine, it was tailor-made to explore human relationships that have lasted longer than the last 10 minutes. The other thing it does very effectively, unlike any other show uh, in the Star Trek canon, is it deals with PSP. PTSD, extreme. Yeah. The, the Nog arc in that sixth, seventh Ugh. season where he loses his leg uh, is, you know, it's only a paper moon, is extraordinary. And, and you know, it's a, a really, um, and I know that it's something that, that veterans have really responded to in a very positive way, you know. And, and, and who, who would have predicted, way. who would have predicted after Emissary that Nog would be one of the, the best, most nuanced characters in the show? Right. Well, that, that's what that show did so well. I mean, it took yeah. characters that you would never think could be important or, or three-dimensional. Uh, I mean, the fact that it took the Ferengi and made them interesting characters, certainly in, in Nog and Quark and all, all of them. But it would take, you know, who would know that Garrick would become this uh, oh, crazy God. character? But Jonathan, you look like, you, you, you know, you've probably never seen Deep Space I'm, Nine. I'm you, trying you to, like, I, I'm trying to avoid uh... saying, no spoilers, no spoilers. Now, <laughs> now, I, now I've got to do it. If only because and... as an atheist, I want to come back and debate religion. <laughs> well, I want to do but that I to show, I have to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, Darren said, uh, you know, regarding the new shows, you know, I think that, that um, there's not a lot to say about the new shows in the sense that, you know, Discovery... I think the big thing that it keeps pushing is, yes, we're a diverse show. We get that. It is. It is a diverse show. But um, in terms of dealing with politics, you know, it do, it doesn't really seem to have 
deal with politics in any kind of meaningful way. Picard, I think, initially talked as though it was going to. The idea that the Romulans uh, are now sort of... Um, uh, refugees. Um, refugees, which is an interesting concept. But they don't really never, deal with that. They don't really deal with it, and then they turn out to be the villains, which yeah. I think particularly in a world in which That's immigrants are, are yeah. being separated from their families and sent to camps and, 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 and being ripped apart from uh, you know uh, their parents and kids are separated from I, I, I think it's the worst possible message that Star Trek could have that you know the Romulans are refugees but you know what they're really bad they're really evil we should have never helped them because yeah. they're they're bad they're bad you know and, uh, and I never got I didn't get that as the message of Picard I, I got that as the the philosophy of a few of the characters um, but in, in Picard's vineyard he's got a couple of romulans there who are awesome right yeah and, but they're the nice elnor. kind of romulans well but then <laughs> you have, the nice then you have ones, yeah yeah then you have elnor who's who's a member of the crew who basically does nothing but you know is is presented as a positive character and, and what they're saying about season two is that he's going to play a, a bigger role um i, I don't know i i guess I, I would say that picard's view of the romulans the show of picard's view of the romulans is not is not simplistic it, it's got a little bit more nuance than that i don't know and i also feel like the, the the depiction of starfleet in that show that it's what you were saying about uh in this case big government is evil because uh yeah. you know they, they're the, the federation is really bad in in picard which is not really how i want to see starfleet and the federation depicted um, until the end i don't want to give any spoilers but until the end when starfleet does save the day but yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I, I don't really, you know, we we, 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 we really try and avoid talking about those shows because um, uh, because they don't uh, there are other people us. who they don't, they speak don't speak, there are other people who, who are passionate about them and we encourage them to talk about it. We, we but in this case, I, I just want to bring it up because it, 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 in, in terms of how it ties into this topic, um, I, think, I think one of the ways that modern Trek kind of does take a political Edge is, and I, and it's not my favorite part of Star Trek by any means, but is is in in Section Thirty One this idea that came up in Deep Space Nine and and winds up uh, being a, a part of Discovery later on Enterprise um, and uh, and I think uh, I don't think it's in uh, it's in this well it's in Discovery majorly um, and Section Thirty One is is sort of this interesting uh, question of whether you can have a utopian society that just functions uh, as a utopian society or whether you need to have in a utopian uh, society you need a fascistic whether you need a shadow government do it yeah do you need that so that's those sort of people who are going to do the things that the that the, that the utopians right. uh, aren't interested in doing i i don't personally like that aspect of star trek i don't like section 31 um but but it, it is an interesting political question uh, that that has sort of risen and is perpetuated in discovery even today. I mean, I it's think... funny though because I actually am on the other side of the fence from you on this. I actually love Section Thirty One in Deep Space Nine, where it was, um, it was, it, and it goes to that very important question of the greater good: is something evil or inherently wrong or immoral if we do it for the greater good? Because that's at the heart of in the pale moonlight where Cisco right. has to do something unethical, but, you know, basically, if it's going to get the Romulans into the war and save millions of lives, 
should he do it? You know, is it okay to do something unethical? And and that is the same question that I think we deal with with Section Thirty One, and you know that Alexander Sadig's character Bashir wrestles with. And I think Section Thirty One, and particularly Bill Sadler, is so interesting in Deep Space Nine. Whereas I, I don't find anything interesting about them in the new shows. But again. I, I want to respect the fact that there are people who love these new shows, and God bless them, you know. And I hope that I'm glad they enjoy them. Jonathan, you're uh, chomping think, at the bit. Yeah, I'm chomping. So I think I really think, based on what you guys have been saying, I think the fundamental tension here that Star Trek has wrestled with from the beginning, and I think this is no probably no longer the case, is that the the sort of utopian society, right? Whether you want to dismiss it as magical thinking or call it aspirational, the the utopian model of how humanity works that Roddenberry was trying to depict is boring. It's not violent. It, it involves consensus building. It's rational. It involves discussion. It's terrible drama, right? And, and, and just a quick little uh, humble brag. So um, the, the, uh, the newsroom, which Aaron Sorkin with the West Wing, he did that show. He came and observed Countdown when I was working on Countdown, and he watched as I was working on the BP oil spill. And it was boring, because I'm sitting there at my computer just doing research and stuff. Maybe I was on the phone with a few people. And then the pilot comes out, the pilot episode of the newsroom, and none of that is there. Why? Because right. this is boring, right? And so I feel like it suffered from that tension, that inability to, to ring drama out of a process that was aspirationally boring. And I, I feel like that that battle's over. That's, that's how it feels to me. That's a great point. That's a great point. I don't even want to get into our whole discussion about how the West Wing is the best Star Trek show since the original Star Trek, because Ooh. that's a whole nother conversation. But, uh, <laughs> but I want to say that I think this was absolutely fascinating, Darren. Did this live up to your, 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 your hopes and dreams for this episode, Darren Docterman? Well, of course. I mean, this, uh, talking, talking uh, about ideas with, uh, with uh, uh, eloquent people is always a fun thing to do and always worthwhile. I, I think it. I think it's. Um, I, I think whatever side of the aisle you're on, hopefully this is a fascinating discussion. And I think for us, we're so tired of all the yelling on social media that to have a, a decision, a, a, a conversation where everyone can express their feelings and find where, whether it's common ground or not. It's the same reason we don't really talk about the new Star Treks. You know, it's like let's talk about stuff. Too soon. Well, that that is true. That we we've actually talked about that. It's too. You know, I don't like to talk about things contemporaneously. It's better when we have some um, the ability to look back and, and some distance uh, to examine them, rather than you know talk about something the week that it airs because it's really hard to have perspective on it. Um, but I, I, I really think that this was interesting. Like I say, a lot more nuanced and hopefully more informative than a bunch of people on Twitter saying, you suck, you suck, you suck, <laughs> you know, uh, because that's what we see so much of. And, and, and then people don't hear what people are trying to get across in 140 characters or right. less, you know, and, uh, and it's just good to have, uh, uh, people who are thoughtful and who take Star Trek seriously. Right. It's not the, the cliche to let that be your last battlefield or, you know, stuff. And, and, you know, I will say this, and this is one thing I didn't talk about. There's a wonderful line in a terrible episode. It's um, when um, 
basically Abraham Lincoln says to her, what a charming negress. Right. And everybody, you know, you think, oh, my God, she's going to slap Abraham Lincoln, right? And, and she says, in the future, we can't be hurt by words. We have learned to, We've not, learned. to not be hurt by words. Yeah. Right. And, and she is comfortable in her own skin. She knows who she is. Yeah. She, she, yeah. In the future, you know, it's like she knows what he, 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 he meant, yeah. you know, and she's not going to be offended. Right. Because it's Abraham Lincoln. No, but uh, and and I, I, I and as I, so even in the worst of Star Trek episodes, and I kind of like Savage Curtain, but in the worst of Star Trek, there's something to take away that's important. And and I, you know, I think that that, you know, in the in the the the, the, the you know the worst of the third season, there's something to be said for that. You know, sometimes, uh, you there's know, somebody says something. Thing. Excuse me, Captain Kirk. Yes, sir. Mr. Scott. The charming negress. Oh, forgive me, my dear. I know that in my time, some use that term as a description of property. But why should I object to that term, sir? You see, in our century, we've learned not to fear words. May I present our communications officer, Lieutenant Uhura? The foolishness of my century had me apologizing where no offense was given. We've each learned to be delighted with what we are. They're still good there. Anyway, but uh, but uh, Danish, thank you for joining us. It was great to have you on the uh, bridge of the original Enterprise joining us to uh, talk uh, talk Trek. And Jonathan, always good to see you, my friend. And we didn't even talk about Alec Baldwin, so you got away scot-free. So <laughs> thank, uh, you. Uh, thank you yeah. to both of you. Thank, yeah, thank you really. to meet you, Danish and Darren and, and Mark. Nice thank to meet you, so you Jonathan. It, it was great to have you guys both uh, join us. You know, this is this is a potentially um, it's a tough show to do this one because you know uh, people feel obviously very strongly, and you know if you have the wrong mix, uh, it, it degenerates in the shouting. It's like remember the old McLaughlin group, um, <laughs> wrong, and, and you know we're wrong, <laughs> <laughs> wrong. <laughs> so uh, so this is great, and I want to remind our audience that you can watch. Inglorious Treksworth Now by downloading the Electric Now app uh, at your favorite app store. It's free, and you can watch episodes of Inglorious Treksworth, the 430 movie, best movies never made, as well as uh, episodes of Librarians and Leverage and The Outpost. So do that now. Of course, we're still available in audio podcast form wherever you listen to audio podcasts. And um, I want to thank our sound mixer extraordinaire, Bill Ritter, who makes us sound so good, even over Zoom. Our uh, production coordinator, uh, Mr. Peter Holmstrom, and uh, Zach Raggett. So until next Saturday, this is Mark Altman on behalf of Jonathan Larson, Danish House, co-host Darren Docterman, and myself saying keep on trekking, and gloriously, of course. Engage.
This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.